end up just talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the extract universe. that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist think of objects not as single things but has been made up of many constituents. You all know I made me hate science. When you're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what, uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist. It is so good to hear that song again. You're a natural reaction here on Z Digital. And I'm Jacinta. I'm back in the studio after a week break. I'm so happy. I've like, I've heard that song now and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> I find it funny that you're more excited to hear that song than being Bali. <laughs> I mean, Bali was fine, but like, being here with you lot is pretty great. Aww. So. Aww. That's nice. <laughs> so we've got Nadia in the studio. Hi, everyone. And we have Izzy, as always. Hello. And we also have a special guest. Special guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I am Diana. And you are from the University of Queensland, a PhD candidate doing neuro... No, developmental neuroscience. Yep, that's it. That sounds pretty like it sounds pretty full on. It is full on, but I only have five months to go submitting my thesis soon. Very Ooh, excited! Congrats! Thank you, thank you. And then you'll be a full doctor. A full doctor. You get to wear the cool hat. An underpaid full doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they all? <laughs> Apart from surgeons, I guess there are some doctors that are overpaid. I'm sure. I think a lot of them are. Well, not a lot of them, but. Some of them are. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about some pretty great stuff. We've got, now I've titled this Old Nerves, New Tricks, Izzy. What do you reckon? Oh, yeah, you know what? I'll give you that. Yeah, pretty good. Yes. So we're going to be talking about that. Izzy, can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, well, just some, been some really promising results with people suffering from paralysis and uh, some new treatments with electrodes. Okay, so some fun electrode stuff. Yeah. People who probably need it more than the rest of us. <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> um, I'm going to be talking to Diana and also a little bit about Pine of Science because I want everybody to buy some tickets to see both of us at different venues doing cool stuff there. Nadia, what are you talking about? I was going to talk about the eye motif, which is an alternative structure of DNA. Um, that has been visualized for the first time in living cells. Now, a lot of new stories are touting this as new DNA discovered, but there's a lot more to the story than that. So I'll go into a few of those details. I can't wait. I love uh, shut down um, news organization <laughs> stories. <laughs> well, a lot of them haven't been too bad and there, ha there hasn't been too much like hyperbolization of this. It's just, you know, the typical clickbait titles. Yeah. Mm. New DNA. You're a natural reaction here on Zed Digital and Izzy's going to tell us about old nerves. Well, a new study out of UCLA in the States, for those who don't know UCLA. Um, University of California. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the actual... I don't know what the last bit is. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. It's published in the Journal of Neurotrauma, uh, and it is about a new non-invasive uh, method of stimulating spinal networks that have been somewhat have uh, been either severely or somewhat damaged non-invasive so they non don't need to put it into them they just like it, it, in the there back? is there is still like these electrodes we'll get we're getting ahead of ourselves okay, sorry, but sorry. there are still electrodes planted into the skin but it's non-surgical when they say non-invasive you don't have to so there's a couple of different ways people have looked at treating these sorts of spinal injuries and uh depending on which is the most effective, it very much depends on individual case-by-case case basis. Uh, don't want to make this out to be a silver bullet or anything. Just uh, that's, that's science in a nutshell. Yes, but it's just, <laughs> it's, it is an interesting step forward. Uh, so 
what they what some researchers have found is that with the through the use of electrodes planted both uh, subcutaneously, so beneath beneath the skin, and epidurally, which is the epidural is like the spinal the gap in the spinal column, the space, the negative space in the spinal column. You want to think of it like that. Is it in the spinal column or between vertebrae? Uh, but I think the, it is the space formed between like the two spinal. Because I was trying to figure this out, it's quite difficult to read the, ma- the anatomical pieces of paper. Uh, when the spinal columns like are stacked, when the vertebrae are stacked together, the space created between the spinal, like in that spinal column, the the outer edge of it is known as the epidural. I'm not explaining this very well at all, and uh, I recommend looking up a picture. <laughs> because there's only so there's only so much a voice can do. Um, Fair enough. But it is like essentially sort of the gap in this sort of negative space area, and uh, by applying a what they call like neuromodulation, which essentially is a some low level electricity electrical fields to the area, neurons that either can sort of fire or maybe can could fire with some help can fire a bit more, and they're sort of allowing the recovery for a significant amount of, uh, in this case, a lot of it's about hand strength, so grip strength, uh, can you open a bottle. Some people had uh, had their hands completely paralyzed. There was only, this study covered eight people, so small n, because again, you are working, you have to find spinal patients. Uh, there's no one going out there just snapping people's spines to study them. Rest <laughs> assured, it's okay, we don't, they don't do that. That would go against many human ethics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, we don't do that as much anymore. Uh, <laughs> anymore? Oh, Let's not get into that. Yeah, let's let's not get into that. So they were able to, again, they sort of apply these electrodes. So transcutaneous enabling motor control is the entire acronym. Initialism? Initialism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's T-E-M-C in order to, again, stimulate some of these nerves. It's it's not exactly, they don't have a full working understanding mechanism behind what has required resulted in the recovery of this movement they do have some very promising results with people being able to open doorknobs and take off caps who were completely unable to use their hands before so that would be like imagine someone i'm imagining this is like someone who has like slight twitches in their fingers and can kind of move it but can't do a lot uh so they had a few different levels of severity of uh patients treated all saw some increase which is like a really interesting part of the study but we have uh, three people who are what they call AISB and five AISC. Uh, so AISB and C are different classifications for uh, chronic cervical uh, damage subject injury subjects. Um, the actual like you know there's a bit of leeway in B and C. Uh, a I, th- I believe is what you would call someone who's completely like the full quadrupe- quadriplegic. Now, it's not mentioned here, but I do know this is part of a, a raft of studies that are looking into this, and there are full quadruplets being looked at into in similar studies. Don't have any results from that yet. Uh, we'll see how that goes forward. The really interesting thing about this study, though, is that they provided some video uh, before and after therapy. So you can see some pretty marked increase in people's abilities to like do basic tasks that are really involved in looking after yourself, like feeding yourself... Uh, if anyone has any has any family members that have had strokes or cerebral palsy or something, you'll know that even just simple things like using a spoon to lifting it to your mouth can become very very difficult in these circumstances. So this sounds like pretty like positive results. Is there a timeline for when we might see this kind of thing used in other stroke or no other pr- 
That is always the question. Uh, Don't tell me 10 years. That's too long. Well, <laughs> well it's hard to know. But the, one of the promising things about this is that it's a non-invasive procedure. So technically, the, the possible economic obstacle is less than in a lot of these. Like surgical procedures, for instance, you need a surgeon. Mm. Uh, goes without saying. Uh, this sort of neuro, this sort of electrical stimulation, while you probably need a specialist surgeon in and there to get a diagnosis, etc., a less expensive technician could definitely apply these kinds of fixes. So that the, it seems like it would be a more economically feasible option for a lot of people. These are the same forward. that um, people with chronic pain use them. Yeah, they're so very the similar. Yeah, so they, they implant them at the top of the spine and then they actually have the device um, implanted in the buttock and it can actually um, recharge through your skin. Yeah. Hmm. Whoa. Yeah. yeah, so people don't have to go in and have any nuts or bolts or nothing done to them. They can just, it's just recharged through, yeah, through the sun. See, I was thinking yeah. that this was more similar to, say, a nerve conduction test. So I've had one of those done where basically they stick these very, very fine pins into your skin yep. and send electrical impulses through. Mm -hmm. Is this just more an implanted okay. device or extension no, no. of that? The, uh, they're, they're looking... They Okay, so it's starting off more what Nadia is talking about now, but they're looking to move more into this full-on implant uh, stu mm. uh, device. However, the need to optimize which muscle targets that they're looking at for mm. specific injuries... Uh, they also found things like you, stimulating a single site was not as effective as stimulating multiple sites at once, mm -hmm. uh, and different areas were better for different uh, actions. So uh, closer to your shoulders, for instance, like that for hand movement, while uh, closer to your lower bar, your, you know, your lumbar sort of mm. area for uh, leg, uh, sort of leg movements and that kind of thing. The other interesting part of the study is that it while it has some specificity in that sort of case where different regions have corresponded better to different uh, actions, there was a general well-being increase amongst the patients where things like they didn't, they had better bladder control, mm -hmm. they had better balance and that kind of thing. So there's general little muscle movements that you don't necessarily fully, you're not necessarily fully cognizant of, also increased. And final question before we chuck to a song here. Do you know how long these improvements lasted for? Uh, so as far as they can tell, because they continued therapy. So they, these, these are throughout eight sessions of therapy. They've continued that, that entire time. I imagine they're probably going to need to continue observing them after this study to find out. I'm guessing also one of the biggest things that they need to refine is like exactly which nerves to jumpstart with this process. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And we have a very special guest in the studio, Diana Lucia, who's a PhD candidate in developmental neuroscience at the University of Queensland. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. I don't usually talk about my research this early in the morning, but <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> it does happen. I mean, yeah, no, it, it's a Sunday morning when we record this and then it's a it's a Tuesday when you when we actually play it. So it gets a bit if anything happens in like three days, we're in trouble. Yeah. Mm. Any but, um, groundbreaking discoveries in the three days? Yeah, we've missed it. Basically. Yeah, that's it. No, I it's trust over. our audience to sit there waiting wrapped for our uh, our report. They shelter themselves from everyone else's hot takes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so, Diana, can you tell us what you're currently doing for your PhD? Yeah, so I'm looking at the effects of maternal alcohol consumption around conception. So usually when women don't know that they're pregnant, 
and how that can actually affect the later life brain outcomes in offspring. So that's insane to me. Like, I mean, it's it's pretty scary when you think about it. It is. It is. Especially because in Australia, there's quite a high, you know, culture for drinking. So it's not so much don't drink. It's like, when are you drinking? Mm. Pretty much. <laughs> so, you know, and, and women, you know, report drinking on average, you know, three and a half glasses of wine or three and a half drinks every day. So these are high, high levels of drinking every day. And the average time point of pregnancy recognition is 30 days. So you have that very early period of development where basically all the genetic code is right there and any environmental influence, whether that's a high fat diet or even alcohol, can actually affect that very early embryo. So that's actually what I was going to ask. So why is conception so much more important than the rest of the pregnancy? Yeah, well, I know a lot of people think, oh, but what would alcohol be doing in that very early time point? There's no brain that's being developed. There's there's nothing at all. But I kind of, I like to explain it in the way that alcohol is kind of tagging that early embryo. So you can have one glass of wine that's been tagged, that's there forever. Another glass of wine that's been tagged, that's there forever. And then incorporates in that early embryo that has the genetic code for every cellular structure that will develop in the fetus. So that that time point of development is really critical. So it basically makes nicks in the DNA as it goes along or adds little groups to the DNA and that affects the entire development, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and it's a really, really difficult concept to grasp because a lot of people think, oh, but, you know, it was just a little blip. There was no brain. Nothing's going to happen. My baby's fine. So it, it's just really important, you know, for women to, you know, if they're planning a pregnancy, to, to not drink. So the thing that kind of got me is this, we're not talking about things that are like, so you don't get a baby if you've drunk at conception, you have your baby. You don't have a baby that's, like, damaged that you can see or anything like that. But what you were talking about is, like, later in life, you know, type 2 diabetes or that kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we know that high levels of drinking during pregnancy can lead to fetal alcohol syndrome and a range of other neurobehavioral problems. But, you know, what we're finding is even that moderate level of drinking every day the offspring tend to have um, type 2 diabetes later in life, more propensity for obesity, even um, changes to the reward pathway of the brain. So they actually prefer more of a high fat diet um, and also learning and memory difficulties and anxiety behaviors. So these are sort of things that, you know, fall under that umbrella of ADHD um, or other behavioral problems that people probably don't know what to put a name on. Yeah. So, um, how do how do you go about teasing those sorts of downstream outcomes Effects, like diabetes yeah. and that from yeah. you know other societal factors that could be at play here? Yeah, I mean, well, to start off with, we use a preclinical model, which means that we use rats in our lab. Because no ethics committee would let us um, give alcohol to a woman that's planning a pregnancy. Yeah, I was gonna say it takes me. It, it takes like what three sheets of paper for me to move a plant from what upstairs to downstairs. I <laughs> right. It, it must take an entire building's worth of paperwork. It know? does. <laughs> it does. But you know, the good thing is that we know that you know rat biology, especially that early embryo, is very similar to human biology. The only difference is that it's a lot quicker. So. Some people at home might be going, how is that possible? Yeah. Uh, 
Do you want to walk us through a little bit how we're a bit similar or is that too much of a tangent? Yeah, well, basically, um, so the developing embryo, it, it develops the same as it would be in human development, so that early embryo. Um, the only difference is that it's a lot faster and also gestation in a rat is about 28 days. So we're able to really get these results fast and we're actually able to pinpoint, you know, 10 days of rat pregnancy, what that equivalent is in a human. And that's why it's a really, really nice model to use for this type of study. Yeah, I was going to say, like, even if you were doing humans, it'd be a long time between <laughs> gestation and finding your type 2 diabetes. Right. But I reckon people would get on board. They'd be like, yeah, give me alcohol. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> like, can I have a nice scotch? Yeah. Maybe maybe not if you tell them what happens. Like, yeah. no. um, Pregnancy is tough, guys. Like, it's harder <laughs> than for people. Well, the biggest problem is, I think, women who don't know that they're actually yeah, pregnant. We'll, we'll yeah. yeah, so that's one of yeah. the biggest problems. But... Obviously, you do get some people that knowingly engage in alcohol consumption when they are pregnant. Yeah. Where is the line drawn between like these um, latent onset symptoms compared to, say, fetal alcohol syndrome? Yeah. So, I mean, it all depends the timing of exposure between first, second or third, you know, trimester and, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome. That's binge drinking, you know, binge drinking every day during pregnancy but you can see a lot of different outcomes let's say a glass or two of wine every day you know that can cause different aspects of fetal alcohol syndrome so alcohol related neurobehavioral deficits all these acronyms for names um, of things but you know at the end of the day I think it's important and and this is the biggest part of my research that I want to get across, that it's a male's responsibility as well, that <laughs> it's not just about females. You know, we're not saying, I think women get annoyed because so many people are telling them what to do. Don't eat this. Don't drink this. Oh, no, you should eat this because my grandma ate that. Or, you know, they read all of these blogs about women saying, you know, oh, I drank and it was fine. Or other women saying, no, don't do this. So I think it's important to include the male especially part of the conversation because it's it's a big it's it's an issue that both the man and the woman need to discuss i guess sorry is i guess that also depends on the whole family dynamic going on as well whether both partners are committed or not yeah that that's true um but you know there have been a lot of studies that have shown that you know what the man does as well is mm. equally as important but men don't want to bring that up at a party <laughs> do they right. well i was going to say that actually so does that mean that uh, the same kind of things with alcohol occur in males as well so if you've been drinking and you're a male and you guys conceive yep. is that going to have the same kind of issues as as if a female was drinking in those early days of yeah well they've done a lot of human population studies which um has been you know really really interesting um there was one study it was a danish study i think it was two thousand men um and they just self-reported what what they were drinking for about uh two months before the study and they were drinking about i think the results were five drinks a week on average and even that was enough to alter the morphology of the sperm and the semen and um, cause changes at, wow. at that type of level. Huh, there yep. you go. And and five, five drinks a week is by no standard binge drinking at all, you know, so just that small effect. But I guess the difference is with men, sperm development takes three months. So when you're looking at, you know, telling a couple don't drink if you're planning a pregnancy 
for men, it's really a longer time that they have to abstain because sperm development does take on average three months. Well, if you're pregnant, nine months. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on top of that. On top of that as well. <laughs> That's true. I mean, this is also coming out, out at a time where we have more evidence for alcohol's ability to directly damage DNA. There's been a few yeah. reports of that. Is like, so what kind, in what way has that other work on just the effects alcohol has on our genetic material uh, sort of influenced this this field? Well, I think the biggest influence with, we already knew the, the effects of, you know, alcohol damaging DNA in pregnancy. And not only that, alcohol damaging DNA with teenagers drinking, you know, at that important part of neurodevelopment. Um, but for us, it was just about taking a step back and, and looking almost backwards from mm. the story. You know, we, we know all the results um, later in life, but it was us stepping back and having a look at that very, very early period of development. So some of the other research that I've seen that you looked at was uh, not just about alcohol, but also about a high fat diet and smoking at around the time of conception. Yep. So I haven't looked at smoking um, exactly myself. There's, but there's plenty of research on it, though. <laughs> there is a lot, and and the high fat diet as well, and and that's you know what we what we want to find out as well is if you know mothers are having a high fat diet, does that some in some way increase the likelihood of their child to want to have a high fat diet? And the answer is unfortunately yes. That's terrifying. I know. I'm like I'm I'm just a bad news person. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense at a like neurological level. Yeah. Because if you are used to consuming a high fat diet, obviously that is so ingrained in your reward center yep. that it's your body's way of saying, well, this is how I survive in a very bad modern sense. Mm. Because it's like, well, I'm getting all this fat. I need this fat. This is what I need to do to survive. Mm. Where really it's not like the case, but those things can be passed down. Yeah. And even when you when you look at preclinical models where you give give the animals an option, you know, do you want to have the nice healthy stuff or do you want to have, you know, the the McDonald's burger, pretty much the equivalent of rat <laughs> food. And if their parents had McDonald's burger when they were in their, you know, in their tummy, they're going to want the McDonald's burger as well. Mm. That's that's crazy. Then. So the, the regular rats are like, no, we're fine. We'll have the healthy stuff. Like, like no, we'll have the healthy stuff. Yep. <sighs> I know. I'm all doom and gloom. I'm sorry, guys. That is incredibly doom and gloom. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> it, it gives you a reason to blame your parents for your, um, <laughs> you want to have that burger, that extra burger on but like a it, Sunday night. But it night. makes every single humanitarian crisis and famine occurring right now a hundred times worse because it means it's probably going to persist for generations. It's true. And, you know, Ooh. the first time that they really started finding out that what a woman does in gestation is important for, you know, their baby was um, during the Dutch winter famine. Have you heard of that? I think so. Yeah. So it was in 1944 to 1945, um, Germany cut off food supplies to the uh, Netherlands. Lots of famines going around then. Yeah. So women basically went from having, you know, a normal caloric diet down to about 500 to 800 calories a day for a year. And it was really the first human population study done of undernutrition, which obviously wasn't planned, but mm -hmm. it was the first one of its time. 
And um, after the Netherlands um, was liberated, they were able to actually look at the effects um, of the babies, you know, and a lot of these children had problems later in life, such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular issues, and not just them, but when they had babies, their kids had those same issues as well. So undernutrition can have just the same effect as yep. overnutrition, I guess. Yeah, and that was the first the first human study that was not done on purpose, you know, but it gave us a really good insight. Mm. How important nutrition is in yep. pregnancy. Yeah. So I think I'll do one more question about your actual research. You might chat yep. to a song. And then I'm going to talk about your general day-to-day life because that's another part that we like doing here in Natural Reaction. Yep. So... This is a pretty broad question. Yep. How do you think that pregnancy itself has changed over the last half century? Oh, how has pregnancy changed? In Australia or worldwide? I don't think I could do worldwide. Australia's fine then. Australia? Let's go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think um, in terms of pregnancy and even giving birth, I feel like that's changed a lot in the Australian context, especially uh, cesarean delivery versus natural birth. I feel like there's a huge stigma with women on what option they should choose. And if they go the cesarean birth in a way that less of a woman, I've heard that. A lot. I've it's read the same it on the with internet. Breastfeeding. Breast. Yep. Exactly the same. And I feel like it's it's changed a lot in the Australian context. More women are getting cesareans, and yet women are getting judged for it, which I think is ridiculous. Um, breastfeeding as well. I think that's that's a big thing. Maybe a woman doesn't want to breastfeed. That's their problem. No one should comment on it. It's not even their problem if they're not comfortable with it. We've advanced to the stage where we can you know, provide efficient nutrition to children with formula. Mm. It might not have the same amount of immunity, but they can still grow up to be quite healthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's been the biggest the biggest change that Basically, I've seen. a tiny group of people being very, very angry about everybody else. I call them the keyboard activists. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I yeah. like that. Yep. But I think a lot of um, things surrounding pregnancy have improved over the years, um, just in terms of uh, different types of supplements that are required and just the general care around pregnancy. Obviously, the mortality rate around um, live births has reduced within you know, the past 50 years, I imagine. Yeah, um, and, and, and the public health message, you know, to have the folate, you know, in early pregnancy. Now, you know, in Australia, we do have the folate in the bread and in other, you know, cereals and things like that. That's mandatory, you know, so that's that's changed a lot. I was also going to say, uh, yeah, the last 50 years, definitely, just, but that's, it's, a lot of it is just a greater access to women's health and maternal care. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a bit of a lack of sort of postnatal care in this country, like in most of the world, there's sort of, the, the effects of things like postpartum depression and stuff like that are only sort of really recently coming to the forefront of people's minds and they are still like really important sort of healthcare spaces. So we talked speak. about that mm. a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can go back and listen to that episode <laughs> yeah. if you'd like to find us a bit of background information on maternal mortality rates. Mm. Yeah. You're in Actual Action here on Zed Digital, and we're in the studio with Diana Lucia, a PhD candidate in developmental neuroscience. Now, Diana. Yes. Can you tell me what your day-to-day life looks like in a lab? In a lab? Up very early pretty much get in the lab around 7 or 8 a.m. and it's a lot of writing and reading, a lot of pipetting, 
<laughs> Always pipetting. Always pipetting, <laughs> you know, because I'm a wet scientist. That's what we call ourselves. So a, a wet biologist. Wet well. biologist, yep. So a lot of pipetting, a lot of experiments that don't work and you have to do them again. I think both of these two could relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just um, long days, but I love it. You know, um, long days, little reward, but we still go back for more. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but other than that, I do a lot of science outreach. So I go and I visit schools around regional and rural Queensland, um, part of a program called Wonder of Science. So they basically take scientists um, out to regional and rural communities. And we go and we talk to these kids about science, um, which is really cool because a lot of the time they haven't even met a scientist before. Um, let alone a scientist that's a woman, which kind of blows their mind. That's awesome. I'm, I'm like, we do exist. <laughs> <laughs> we are there. Um, yeah. So that's that's pretty much a typical day. I love how, so like all of the biologists we've had on and asked that question, like, yeah, really long days, you know, yeah, like yeah. going in. And yeah. then like the physicist came in and was like, yeah, I usually get it in around 10. And then I leave yeah. around 5. That's and I'm like, so funny. Because <gasps> obviously they're, they're still doing work, but it's just a totally different type of work. Yeah. And, and a lot of it would be on their laptop, right? Modeling and doing all those sorts of things. There's yeah. also a lot yeah. of stuff that you, in biology, there are certain things that will simply take, and in chemistry as well. There are certain reactions in certain biological processes that just take a certain amount of time. You can't yell at them to speed them up or anything. I know. It's true. It's true. So and it's starting an experiment on a Wednesday that goes for three days and finding out it fails on Friday afternoon. Yeah. You're like, oh, I hate it's, my it, life. it's enough to do a lot of damage <laughs> to your psyche. It is. I, I do. I got to ask, uh, when you guys sign up for your PhDs, do they, does it come with like a prescription for antidepressants? I just, <laughs> do they cut out the middleman or? It, it, yeah, no, we, we have to sign, uh, sign the contract in blood. <laughs> in blood. <laughs> Okay, everyone, they're talking shit. Yeah, this does not happen. This is not true. A PhD actually... is still a worthwhile endeavor. It is. Do a PhD. <laughs> Says the person not doing a PhD. Yeah, exactly. I would actually love um, to see if they had to do a mental health assessment before and after PhD and see the outcome of that. Oh, can I do that PhD? Can my PhD be studying people before and after their PhD? Would you be part of the study? I mean, maybe, I suppose. <laughs> but, like, your PhD, by definition, would have to go for, like, eight years then, right? Because you'd have to look at someone before, when they start, and then when they after, and then have, like, a thesis writing moment. Yeah. Mm. That's true. That is true. Mm. You but could do honours. You could do honours yeah. here. You could look at honours kids. Oh, yeah, you could do a PhD on honours kids. That would mm. work. Mm, I don't know if, like, nine months is enough to have a mental health effect, but in saying that, I know it does. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I don't know. I've met a lot of honours people who are not the same anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I think we've gotten way off topic, yeah. so I'm going to try and bring us back a little bit. Um, we talked a little bit about the models that you use in the lab. Yep. So, what other type of models do you use to try and um, simulate what a fetus in a human would be like? Well, other than rat models, you know, you can use uh, mice, uh, sheep are very good models as well. Oh. Um, and also pigs, which is surprising to a lot of people. But mm. pigs and sheep are, are probably the best to use for um to mimic human pregnancy. But I don't I don't know. I don't think I could do it. Like ugh. it's already hard enough with rats, they're so cute. And sheep and pigs. Mm, and that's little, another level of right? intelligence and cuteness. Little piglets. I mean, <sighs> right? But see, like, I, I find that really interesting, right? Like, I just want to point out to all the listeners here that, like, you can tell that although a lot of scientists have to use animal models, 
it's not like it's something that they enjoy doing. Like, you know, it's nice to hang out with the animals, but it's not nice to be in a situation where you... And the paperwork yeah. alone. <laughs> I know. And also these animals, they're looked after so well. Yeah. So well. You know, they're looked after really well. And unfortunately, it's just that that circle of life in science where the preclinical work has to lay the foundation for the clinical studies. Like, we wouldn't have any drug or any clinical studies going on at the moment for so many diseases if it wasn't for the preclinical aspect of it. And you really don't want to put a drug that you haven't tested in animals into humans. Like, it's just not ethical at all. Uh, And the worst argument that you get from people is like, oh, just use it on criminals. And it's like, whoa. That's, you know, that's not going to work. That's so bad. I do want to say, yeah, this is like a point I want to put out to the listeners for anyone who's ever sort of had those ideas about, oh, maybe you can you know, pay people to do it and stuff. Anytime any of those sorts of systems have ever been in place, they're immediately abused by people in power and it ju- you've just created like a disgusting un- underclass system. It- it's pretty terrible. So uh, we'll stick with animal models. Yep. In the meantime, <laughs> that got into a weird place. So, <laughs> I was going to ask a question though before, because yep. you work with rats. Yep. Uh, working with animals always by necessity adds another layer of complexity to the lab work and all the things you're doing it's just you know there's more to do yeah how does working with rats like sort of add to your work day so to speak well we look after them you know i we go in every day and weigh them and make sure they're healthy you know you play with them a little bit as well and you change their water you change their food you know you're there give them toys yeah exactly giving them social enrichment so you spend a lot of time with them so they kind of become your best friend like you you even start talking to them they don't talk back to us yet i'm hoping one day they will (laughs) (laughs) not yet though yeah, so it adds um, it adds a lot of hours, but you know, I I would rather have that interaction with the animal than have someone else do it for me. To be honest, rats talking yeah. back to you, I feel like would be a whole other ethical dilemma. No, I saw Ninja <laughs> Turtles. That stuff is lit. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you introduce alcohol into the rat's diet? Yeah, so we use um, a milkshake. Oh, yeah, oh. yeah, because they're not gonna they're not gonna drink the alcohol if it's just in pure, hundred percent ethanol. Because... So you're basically giving them like Bailey's, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we give them a uh, sustagen, you know, the oh, the powder yeah. that you can get that has you know um, all the calories in it and all the other vitamins. So we give them a milkshake every day um, with sustagen, milk, and a little bit of alcohol. So the alcohol equivalent we give them is about. Uh, for around four standard drinks a day. So we're trying to mimic it to what women are reporting to drink. Yeah, and then we we shake it up for them, give them the bottle, and then away they go. Do they exhibit, like, symptoms of being, quote-unquote, drunk? Right, well, rats actually metabolise alcohol uh, three times as fast as humans do. So they'll reach about 0.2 in terms of their blood alcohol level within an hour. But uh, they adapt pretty well. I haven't seen any crazy things yet. can, do rats have a, a gag reflex? Can they can they throw up? They can throw up. Okay. Um, but we give it to them in a little in a little water bottle, and you know we habituate it to them, which means you know we we even give them the the milkshake without the alcohol to make sure that they like it, and it's in the same bottle that they would drink water. So for them, you know, it's not not a big deal. Mm. And they'll <clears throat> sorry, and they'll drink that throughout the day, not just like in one sitting. Nope, they'll drink that uh, throughout the day, and then we replace it every day. So we give it four days, you know, um, well four days before mating and four days after. So 
sort of around conception that time and then we just put them back onto water and normal diet hmm. and then obviously you track the young yeah throughout and, development and then see yep and then um I take the young and then uh, look after them. They're my little babies for three, four months. <laughs> and then I put them through um, mazes, through different types of learning and behavior tests to see uh, how they adapt and if there's any any changes. That's like, I mean, it sounds really fun as someone who like sits <laughs> like on my computer all day. I'm like, I want to play with rats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Until your experiment doesn't work and you have to prepare like a hundred million times in one day. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y- yeah getting attached to them for me would be the most difficult part because that amount of care i mean i've worked with mice in the past and you don't get too attached to them you can but rats are on a whole other level because you have to play with them and then you have to you know socialize them and they are just amazingly intelligent creatures so it is tough yeah they are and they remember you you know when you go in like they you have a certain smell you know so they know it's you and that's why they tell, they say, you know, once you go and, you know, you meet them, <laughs> don't use any new shampoo or conditioner or perfume because it freaks them out. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, imagine if someone just changed their face and, like, walked up to you and thought everything would be fine. <laughs> Hello. How yeah. you doing, Bob? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, me. It's like, oh, hi. <laughs> so changing a little bit here, yep. you're part of the Australian Skeptics magazine, I think? Yes, I am. So can you tell us what it means to be a skeptic? Right. So to be a skeptic, I think, is to ask questions about everything, everything and anything, and to not believe what's told, but to investigate further. Now, this doesn't mean that you're like an anti-vaxxer or anything like that. No. (laughs) No exclamation point. Quite the opposite. No, actually, yeah. Definitely the opposite. Um, no, I think, you know, to be sceptical um, is really important, not just as a scientist, but as a general consumer. You know, to be sceptical, ask questions and, and, and not trust or not believe as such all the information that's given to you. And so I'm. Uh, if people who haven't heard of skeptics before, yep. again, it's not it's not anti-vaxxers. It's not people who no, we're not a cult. Don't believe in mainstream science. Not yet. Not yet. Um, <laughs> it's looking at things empirically, scientifically, and yep. and looking at the evidence and saying what do we actually like, and and working it out for yourself. Absolutely. But on that topic, how do you how does the Australian skeptics feel about the sort of appropriation? by various communities like the anti-vax community of Flat the Earth. word skeptic. <laughs> yeah, because there has been this sort of movement to claim the word skeptic for, uh, I'm not going to be generous at all, I'm just going to say very silly movements. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, does that like, yeah, what kind of a, f- how does that feel as someone part of an, an organized skeptic movement? It's it's difficult because I don't you don't want to have a mentality of us against them because that's not how you get them, you know, on our side. You know, wasn't there a study that said that the more you try and convince someone of your views and use scientific evidence and empirical data, the less that they will actually yeah. want to, you know, conform to or even listen to anything you're saying. So, it's just it's it's tough because you want to come at it in a way where you don't want to judge them because they honestly do believe what they're saying, you know, like that person at the water cooler that's telling you about this amazing crystal that makes you like <laughs> lose weight and all of they actually believe it. They're not doing it to harm you. Like they actually believe it. So, you know, it's not about going on a tangent with them about, you know, this evidence shows this and this shows this, you know, you kind of have to slowly just, you know, push them to your side. 
plant just seeds. Plant little seeds so that they think about it later at night when they're chopping their vegetables. They're like, wait, <laughs> I think she's got a point. They're playing with their crystals. <laughs> they're playing with their crystals and like, wait, this doesn't work at all. You know, that's that's what we want. We want that epiphany to happen. I like that. That's actually a, a smart way of doing things. Better than just banging them over the head and hoping it works. No, I mean, you know, we're not all Gwyneth Paltrow and a group <laughs> health movement. Like, No jade eggs no, anywhere to no be found. No jade eggs. No, you know, I, I saw this like box that you can, I went onto her website purely for research purposes for an article I was writing for Skeptics Magazine about celebrity pseudoscience. And there was this box that you could buy and it had like three crystals in it, a feather and like some essential oil. And it said that it was like to boost learning and memory or something. It was like a hundred dollars. Oof. Yeah, this was just a like Gwyneth Paltrow, I think. Anyone who wants to insult Gwyneth Paltrow about this goop stuff, feel free because But she's smart though, what no, she's No, no, I was gonna say this right? is because this is not and this is not like you definitely this is Gwyneth Paltrow. This is yeah. definitely not like she whether or not she believes it means nothing because She's having a good go. Yeah, and she's selling it to people who for a hundred dollars for, a for lots and lots of money. It's yep, it's it's pretty despicable. It's commercial like commercialism and marketing and taking advantage of people's esoteric ideals. Mm. Mm. Yep. So you're also not a newbie to the mic. We talked a little bit off air about your radio national work. Yep. So <clears throat> can you tell us a little bit about? That I mean, th- what you were saying off air was awesome. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I do a little bit of freelance science communication work for ABC. They have a wonderful program called Occam's Razor. It's um, hosted by Robin Williams. He's like a national treasure, pretty much. Um, he's been doing the show, I think, for about 40 years now, and he still uses the same cassette recorder that um, he used when he first started the show that has, like, this huge ancient mic on it. You know, he's he's very um, old school, but he's... Um, He's really supportive of um, up-and-coming science communicators or just scientists that want to talk about their research. So it's it's really cool. That's I, I love that so much. I just want to like like you know knock on his door. Hello, I'm a science communicator. Yes, <laughs> teach me, <laughs> please. I want to be you. Yes, <laughs> exactly. He has the very old school David Attenborough feel to him. He has a great speaking voice. He does <laughs> such a good speaking voice. Yeah, I try and practice it and mimic it, but no. I, I can't do it. Can't do it. You're in reaction here on Zed Digital, and it's time I think to talk a little bit about Pint of Science, which yep. is coming up not that far away. It's like two few, weeks yeah, away. A few weeks. So on the between the 14th and the 16th, there's going to be a bunch of really really cool talks happening around Brisbane in a bunch of Brisbane pubs which I mean isn't great considering we've just been talking about alcohol like syndrome yep. the whole time <laughs> but you can definitely order a soft drink or we've also talked about really depressed PhD candidates and postdocs so like <laughs> we need a drink yeah leave them alone exactly <laughs> that's true exactly. you can drink whatever you want so um Diana's gonna be doing her little talk do you know how long they are 10 minutes uh, no, I think they're 25. Oh. I know. Get a whole 25 minutes of Diana. Yep. Um, and that's on the 14th of May the at the Loft yep. in West End. In West End. End. Yep. And what could, can you give us a sneak peek? Sneak, sneak peek? Sneak on peek. What, on what to expect. On what to expect, yeah. Yeah. Um, there'll be a 
free alcohol. Just look under your seat. It'll be an Oprah moment. (laughs) 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 Like everyone gets a bottle of wine. It's just what I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) They're all like clean skin, two dollars. You get a wine. You get a wine. You get get a wine. (laughs) Again, if these are mostly postdocs, PhDs, and honor students, it's going to be fine. (laughs) (laughs) They're not even going to know the difference, right? (laughs) I mean, I'd be happy with half a goon sack, so come on. Oh, don't lie. You'd be fine with like this 100% laboratory ethanol. (laughs) As, As long as it's, you know, not denatured, it's okay. <laughs> That'd be hilarious though. Like you're like everyone gets a wine except it's a goon sack and you all get like one little bit per like <laughs> it's a tasting. <laughs> yeah. It's a goon tasting. <laughs> no, but um yeah, I'll just be talking about um the principle of the developmental origins of health and disease. So just a bit of the history of it, what I spoke about just before with um the Dutch winter famine, just setting up the scene a bit for people to know, you know, not just about alcohol, but all different types of of, of issues um, during pregnancy, and but it won't be all doom and gloom. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it light. Keep it light. I mean, and so you can also, at those particular events, you can also win pint glasses and there'll be trivia and there'll be a bunch of fun stuff. Um, and if you want an even extra, um, extra science, I'm also doing, I'm, I'm emceeing at the Catchment Brewery um, on the 14th, 15th and 16th. So I wouldn't recommend coming to the 14th because oh. that's when you should uh, be going and seeing Diana. But on the 15th and 16th, there are the many faces of venom and art and blockchain oh. buzz and the Internet of Things. Oh. Yeah, I actually I'm excited for that one because I hope I actually learn how uh, the Internet of Things and blockchain works. So, so how does MCing work? Do you just be like, what up, what up, what up? Yeah, I'm basically <laughs> yeah. I'm in, my, just in my head just into it. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like old school Easy E. Yeah, exactly. So basically, I'm running the trivia and I'm hoping to bring in a few science jokes. It'll be super lame and everyone will, you know. Yeah, come on, give it, give us a science. Is it going to be like knock knock? Who's, Who's there? there? I don't know. I didn't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was just an example. <laughs> Feel free to roll that with was, it. That was excellent. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm stealing that now. Like, knock, knock. Who's there? I'm sorry. I just. <laughs> I didn't think of anything, guys. <laughs> no, um, I'm going to steal your idea and just put wine in everyone's seats. I figured I didn't mm-hmm. say anything after that. Like, right. Yeah, no, so that's <laughs> that's what's happening, and it's going to be a fun night. So, f- fun three nights, I should say. Um, and if you are keen, you can book tickets on the Pint of Science site. Um, it's forward slash events, forward slash Brisbane, but you'll be able to find it through there. And like the Facebook page, because you'll keep you in the loop of what's happening as well. Yeah. Yep. Come and learn about science. Yeah. And yep. have a baby. And have a bevy. Or Did two. you say have a baby or have a bevy? Both. Don't have a baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you're going to be drinking. Or have a baby. Like, we don't tell you what to do. Do what you want. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> don't, don't take your life and decision advice from this radio show. Just don't please. do it at the venue. Like, no, you're supposed no. to be learning about science, not like, you know, doing other things. Exactly. Guys. Exactly. They're getting really hands-on experience with developmental biology. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> funny. So is there anywhere else that we can catch you if you, after Pine of Science? So you've got the Australian Skeptics magazine. You're doing all lots of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be doing a few talks for ABC for National Science Week in August. So that'll be pretty cool. That's in Sydney, though. Oh. Um, but, yeah, I'm just kind of all over the place. I love it. You're doing so much outreach work. This is, like, amazing. How, how do you how find do you, time? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking about it the other day. I don't, I don't know. You just can't, you make it work, right? And you know what? If you really love what you do, I know, oh, I know everyone says this and I thought like, oh, whatever, it doesn't feel like work <laughs> is what I was going to say, but it really doesn't. And especially all the outreach stuff, like to be able to 
talk to these kids about science and just expose them to the scientific method you know to have them be able to go home to their parents and be like oh we met this scientist and he does this or she does this and it's so cool and to be able to to you know, to, to have that happening, I think, is really important. So yeah. with with your outreach programs, yep. do you find it a matter of, like, are schools really receptive? You can just reach out and say things like, oh, look, would you, uh, we'd like to come around. We'd like to show you kids, the kids some sciencey sort of stuff. Yeah, or, well, I kind of, I started in the, uh, the CSIRO Scientists in Schools program. I think now it's called Professionals in Schools or something. They've renamed it. Um, yeah, I know. I don't know why. But um, Everything has to sound like it has industry backing. Right, exactly. So I started uh, with that um, and I loved it. It was really cool going around Brisbane, visiting different schools. Then um, I became a science ambassador for a program, Wonder of Science, from UQ. Uh, that kind of takes you around, you know, Dolby, Roma, Tara, all these places that you usually, you know, wouldn't go to talk about science. And then from there, yeah, it kind of snowballed and you just get contacted and people just say, you know, come to my school, talk to my kids. And yeah, it's really cool. That's great. Yeah. That is so cool. I like it. Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital and Nadia. Hello. Tell me about this new amazing DNA that we've never seen before ever. Uh, she said sarcastically. <laughs> <laughs> the tone in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, recently a lot of um, articles have been reported on this new structure of DNA that's been discovered. And it's not it like a twirly helix instead of a double helix. It's a, it's part of the double helix, but it's a knot within the double helix. Oh, that's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, so basically um, the crux of the story is it's an alternative structure of DNA that has been visualized in living cells for the first time. Now, when we think of DNA, we think of the typical double helix structure, which can be likened to like a twisted ladder, or I like to think of it as like the fusilli pasta, because mm. it's the same type of shape. Mm-hmm. And um, the structure was first reported in 1953 by James Watson and Francis Crick. And the conventional strand of DNA is made up of your four bases, which are the building block blocks, building blocks <laughs> of the double helix. Um, so that is your adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine, your A, T, Cs, and Gs that uh, base pair with one another, A to T, C to G. And generally speaking, the structure of the DNA molecule comes from um, this type of base pairing, but this is not always the case. Now, throughout the years, it's been established that DNA can, in fact, adopt many different structures. And um, some of these have been called alternative duplexes, triplexes, um, just the way the bases can actually form these different structure and also things like quadruplexes. So far, one of the best studied of these different structures is called the G quadruplex, which is a quadruple helical structure formed by DNA sequences rich in guanine, so the Gs. Whoa, wait, do you mean like... Like, it just visualizes for me. Does that mean that there's multiple structures on the DNA or, like, it's just a bit wonky because there's a couple on one side and one on the other? So think about, like, two strands of DNA and then one that just has a lot of Gs and then it kind of folds in on itself. Oh. So it creates a s- similar to, like, a knot-like structure. Yeah, so yeah. there's still a structure of the double... There's, like, still two bits of DNA together. Yeah. But... There, that whole thing can fold back in around mm. on itself. Um. So it's like kinks in one side of the DNA. It's what we call, uh, so like you have mm. the the primary, secondary, and tertiary structures of DNA where they they, they have different properties in different. Like it, it's one of those very hard things about how we how DNA folding works is that uh, there's a reason some regions are conserved more highly than others is that 
sometimes you need these specific shapes to fulfill very specific criteria. And so you really need the right numbers of Gs and Cs in an area or As and Ts, depending on the thing. Mm. Yeah, so these regions of the DNA that are quite rich in, say, these Gs can form like a variety of different like quadruple structures. Um, and they can form from one, two, or four different strands. So it's just like a little kink in the DNA. And these G quadruplexes have actually been quite extensively studied and characterized. Now, in genomic DNA, wherever there are regions or guanine um, base pairs, there are always complementary sequences that are rich in cytosines, which is your C. Mm -hmm. um, and these sequences can also form quadruplex structures, and these are known as I motifs. But there, there's been a lot less known about the prevalence of these I motifs um, in living cells. Now, I motifs are like the name is originally derived from intercalated motifs, and they were first reported in 1993 by three researchers by the name of Kelly Goering, Jean-Louis Leroy, and Maurice Garon. And they found that DNA sequences containing stretches of cytosines can form intercalated quadruple helical structures under acidic conditions. So if you interlace three of your fingers into one another, that is the kind of knot that these things produce. Wow, that's a pretty like decent knot. Mm. And these knots have been observed in the lab time and time again. And tons and tons of papers have been reporting on, say, the structure of these, but they have never, ever been observed inside a living cell. So researchers have wondered, is this a naturally occurring phenomenon or is something happening to the DNA when it is outside of the cell? Mm -hmm. And a paper recently published in Nature Chemistry has for the first time demonstrated that this unusual form of DNA, um, this little knot in the double helix, is actually inside living cells. Where did they find it? Um... So they found it in cell cultures, so a variety of different cell types. Now, the paper that was published is called I-Motif DNA Structures Are Formed in the Nuclei of Human Cells. And this was reported by a team of Australian researchers at the Garavan Institute of Medical Research in Sydney. And this study was led by Professor Daniel Christ. Now, in order to actually locate these I-Motifs inside these cells growing in a dish, Scientists managed to design tiny probes that could recognize these knots. And the way they did that is by using antibodies. So they used antibodies as probes. So antibodies are naturally occurring immunoglobulins in your immune system. They're little Y-shaped molecules and they can bind very, very specifically to a certain substance. And in this case, the antibody was engineered so that it would attach itself to eye motifs, but not to any other form of DNA. And what got me excited about this story is I'm using the same method to find antibodies for my target cells. That's mm. very cool. Um, and the paper, the crux of the paper is it actually reported the generation and characterization of this antibody fragment um, and then the probing of the cells. So it was also about the methods and how they actually found these eye motifs. And what they did is a technique called phage display. We have spoken about it on the show before. And what we do is we engineer viruses that infect bacteria to display these little antibody fragments like hats mm -hmm. um, on the surfaces of their, um, on their surface. And basically what you want to find is all the red hats that will bind to 
um, your specific antigen. So have a giant pool of antibodies with a whole bunch of different like fragments on them. They can look like little hats. And then we just need to tease out or pan to find out like that needle in a haystack, one sequence that binds. So now, these, sorry, yeah, the, these um, tangles and the eye motifs, are they, do they have the possibility of being epigenetically regulated? So by epigenetics, I mean, you know, to have a methyl group or something attach itself to the DNA sequence, which doesn't change the underlying sequence, but changes the expression of the gene. Or is it because it's tangled that you can't have anything else binding to it? Well, this is the good thing with identifying this um, structure or having a tool. Mm-hmm. So this antibody probe that they designed is now a tool so we can find out more about how it's actually involved in regulation. Mm-hmm. And basically what they did is they isolated this antibody and then they put a fluorescent tag on the end. I believe it was green fluorescent protein. Mm-hmm. And so then they added this to the cell culture and when they applied the, this probe, this little antibody probe to a variety of human cells, they saw green spots appearing in the nuclei of these cells. And what excited them the most was they could see these green spots, the eye motifs, appearing and disappearing over time. Oh. So these motifs are actually forming, dissolving and forming again. That's cool. And basically these transient eye motifs are, um, appear late in a cell's life cycle. So as a cell divides and goes through mitosis, um, these eye motifs appear to be um, present in the late G1 phase, which is when your DNA is being read and your chromosomes are starting to be duplicated. And they also appear to be um, in certain promoter regions around areas of DNA. So these promoter regions basically control where the genes are switched on and off. Mm-hmm. So they may definitely have a role in epigenetic, in epigenetic regulation yeah. or epigenetics may have a role in controlling these R motifs. So they may potentially affect whether a gene is actively read or not. And the thing is, these alternative DNA confirmations might be important for proteins in the cell to recognize DNA sequence and exert their regulatory functions. So the biggest thing is we have a probe to study these now. And that is the most amazing thing because these eye motifs have been extensively studied and they've seen to be associated with certain genes like the BCL2 gene, which is a proto-oncogene involved in cancer. Mm. So now that we can study these, we can figure out what are they doing? Can we target them? And to me, that's a really, really cool finding. Not the fact that scientists have discovered, quote, (laughs) new DNA, but scientists have found a way to further resolve the structure of DNA. Yeah, that's very cool. That is cool. So is it supposed to be... So are these things... Uh, it sounds like a very silly question, but are these things supposed to be there or are they are they mistakes? Like, do we know anything about this or? Um, I think it's just the way DNA can actually fold. Yeah. So it's not just a closed cut and clear case of what well, has this double helix shape and then it reads like this. It's, it's a lot more complicated than we think. And we are con- constantly finding... Um, out nuances, like we finding all these nuances when it comes to how DNA is read, how our genes are regulated. Um, epigenetics is a mm. relatively new and emerging field mm. where you have your genomic layer of DNA and then you have a layer above that called your epigenome. Mm. And the more we start to probe into these things, the more we, we realize we don't know as much as we think about mm. how genes are regulated, how proteins influence genes. 
and all of that. So this is a really cool step forward into finding out one more thing about how genes may be affected or regulated. I love it. We ended up on a on a good news story. Mm. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> news story. It's exciting. <laughs> it is very, very exciting. exciting. It's a news it's a story. It's a news story. And actually, um, so even though eye motifs were originally, I guess, described in 1993, these um, regions of gua- um, cytosine-rich sequences were actually originally identified in 1963. So we've known about these random structures and these little bits and kinks and knots within DNA for quite a while now. But it's only now that we can see them in a cell. In a living cell. Very cool. Well, like, you know, it was... E equals MC squared was like defined in 1905 or something like that. And it wasn't until the 1940s that the first nuclear testing was undertaken. Yeah, that's true. It's all well and good to have these things in theory and on paper, (laughs) is is the point. You got to sort them out the other way. You're a natural reaction here on Z Digital. And Izzy, I think you've got something to say about the Cuban offline internet. Yes. So it's uh, called El Paquet. Sorry, my Spanish is not great. Uh, this is this comes from a paper out of uh, the University, sorry, the Georgia Institute of Technology, not the not the Georgia University of Technology, Georgia Institute of Technology, uh, looking into what is essentially this distributed offline internet. Where, so right now, I'll give you some background first. We'll start at the beginning. Uh, Cuba does have access to the internet. However, the lack of infrastructure restricts it to mostly some cities and some Wi-Fi zones that are quite expensive to to access, from what I understand, like quite expensive for your average Cuban to access. From what some people on the ground have said, it's kind of like you're willing to spend to pay to go online like once or twice a day. It's not something that people would be doing uh, like 24-7 kind of thing. Just their relationship with the internet's a bit different. And uh, quite a few people, the a lot, a lot of people actually, don't have access to the internet at all. Uh, so, but to come, they've got around this sort of lack of internet access by having, what well, well, this El Packet system, which is a sort of series of people around the country uh, take it upon themselves to download various bits of whatever digital content is out there and they think is worthy of attention at the time. So this is things, anything between movies and music videos to to news. Soap operas are apparently very, very popular uh, <laughs> on El Packet. And they get them onto these terabyte, or into these US, uh, to like hard storage, mostly terabyte sort of size keys. They do this overseas, though, don't they? They do it like in America over the border. Oh, no, there's some people do it in the country, in, in country. They do it in country as well. Oh, really? Yeah, there's people that do go, uh, that happen to go overseas, but there are people that do it in country off these Wi Fi zones. Uh, and we'll get into how that happens in just a second. But then they then pass around like these sort of people know people who receive the big packages and then everyone comes and gets the data off them with their USBs and they choose what, like, you know, obviously they normally can't take the whole terabyte for that week. Uh, so it's like the weekly, it's like this week on the internet for Cuba. It's like the weekly newspaper of what's on the internet for oh. for Cuba for a lot of people. Uh, so how this sort of network of system works is uh, it's kind of sneaker net is what they call it, which is like essentially people passing data to each other <laughs> on sneakers, <laughs> wearing sneakers, uh, is they have people called maestros or los maestros, and they like run their own 
studios, so to speak. And they're essentially curators of online content where they will have access to people who either make stuff or can have internet access to find stuff. And they will assemble a terabyte of good stuff, essentially, from these people. They'll edit it down, remove commercials, uh, make sure there's no pornography or or anti-state stuff going on in the on in the uh, actual media that they have and then they will then compile it onto the paquitos who are the people who are more in line with the the big distribution hub like connecting the big distribution hubs and it sort of flows all through this like these individual little studios that operate out of the major cities assembling interesting digital content putting it into a hard drive and giving it out there the way that so i've um i know a little bit about this from a amazing like really really good actually vox i think it was a vox video Mm. um about the yeah the cuban offline internet and from the way they were talking about it it seemed like a bit like a like kind of like a drug deal like you know you you go and you you pay for your internet and then you you take whatever you need and then you keep going and you pass it on and i just always thought that was really interesting the way that they've they've managed to commercialize it yeah, well, because quite they need to. I kind of feel like it's a bit sad that the internet has no porn. <laughs> yes, well, yeah. No, I, I'm sure that there's plenty of black marketeers uh, that you could find to fill, like, I mean, to fill the niche, to, to fill, fill that niche, void, fill that as, void it will. Life, as, a, as it were. Yes, uh, it's also quite interesting because like they, it, one of the pains that this paper takes to tease out is they go into detail about how it's what they call a. Uh, a negotiated sort of network where uh so because you only have access to like say like if you you have any access to whatever hard drive space that you have that you can take back home with you essentially you got to pass out what you what you want to take but there's also people who are part of that sort of distribution network will know regular customers and tailor things for them for instance people who run cafes and restaurants often just want music videos and they don't often don't have a computer because again they don't have the internet proper uh so the packages the people who package the stuff will put it onto a usb in such a way that people just plug it into a television or a dvd player Ah. and then play the stuff so like there is also this sort of social negotiation going on between like how this content is presented in what way and who gets what uh, there is also, of course, you know, there's power structures you have to negotiate there. As we've said, that there's some some level of censorship going on, uh, and this is all in the hands of the the maestros. So, of course, you're always going to have these. You have to negotiate these power structures in it. But it's it's just very, it's a very interesting look at how these networks that we sort of think of as completely undivorceable from the internet of everything. Is being divorced from it. Is being divorced from it, yeah. And like how uh, how you might make use of these inter- information networks in less developed circumstances. So cool. And how long have they been doing this for? Oh, quite a while from what I imagine. From, uh, it, apparently it reached peak popularity in 2011. Oh. And uh, it's still how a, a lot of uh, millions of Cubans receive the majority of their digital content because so they don't have great internet at it's all. it's just the infrastructure is not there i still feel it would be better than ours sometimes like, <laughs> sometimes it's like a saturday night and it's like 1.2 like, no, what is going on australian internet in comparison to some countries is actually really good there's as as horrible as like transitioning onto like nbn and mm. all of that stuff is 
there are some places that are way worse. Yeah, we've got to we've got to keep that in perspective, I suppose. But then you know, Malcolm Turnbull has MBN in his house, so whatever, it's fine. I'm so mad about it. I'm still like I heard about that like four weeks ago, and I'm still mad that he got it in like 2011. He was like, "Yeah, I need this." You're like, "What?" The truly annoying thing about the NBN, and it's so under talked about in Australia, is that the ownership of the copper wiring that we used defaults yep. back to yep. Telstra in yep. 10 to 15 years. So it, it is completely able for Telstra to jack up the price when it defaults back to them. We didn't even buy the lines. We <laughs> rented them. It's a joke. Your nice reaction here on Z Digital. And we're finishing up. We are. This is mm. us. We've done the whole show. We've been talking about the Cuban offline internet. Thanks, Izzy. Cheers. The iMotifs. Of course. Which is so cool. I don't know. I love it. DMA is weird. And like more research is finding out that we can make these crazy structures of with DNA. Like DNA origami is a big thing now where you have like noodle-like DNA that folds in on itself and you can make smiley faces and everything. It's so cool. It's, yeah. I remember like it was very back when the sort of human genome sequencing project was a big thing. It was all like, oh, we're going to know the exact code and all the mystery is going to be solved. Well, and then it's like... Ah. Now there are more unanswered yeah. questions. Yeah. Yeah. Got the book, hard to read. <laughs> um, we also spoke about um, nerve damage and how you can make it better. Well, yeah. You, with electrons. Yeah. Well, ele- buzz, yeah. buzz. <laughs> buzz, buzz. <laughs> no? Yeah, well, yeah. Electrical currents. I mean, it's a bit more technical than that, but yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much a show in a nutshell. It's a bit more technical than that, but that's how we're going. Um, and we've had our interview with the amazing, soon to be doctor, Diana Lucia. Thank you. Soon to be doctor. I like the. I like the sound of that. Yeah. <laughs> now I can tick that box, you know? You know that box where it's like Miss or Ms or Doctor? Oh, um, yeah. Tick. That's Not the stuff that like makes me want to get a PhD. <laughs> right. Not in an airplane though, right? Because you don't want someone bothering you. Like, Is oh, anyone is there a doctor on board? <laughs> you're like, like, nope. <laughs> I'll have another gin and tonic. <laughs> Not that kind of doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so thanks everybody for listening. Um, you can listen to us on the podcast. Um, I've been really slack, but we will be uploading both episodes this week and last week. ASAP. You guys are the best. Thanks for listening. Um, and yeah, you're a natural reaction. You guys, uh, thank you, Nadia and Izzy, as always. No, no problem. And we're going to finish off with, what are we listening to? We're listening to Neon... Fernando by ABBA. Neon Dash. <laughs> oh, so yeah, um, Izzy is excited that Abby, um, that ABBA has gotten back together, ABBA's but we're not playing together. any ABBA because yeah. I am not a big fan of ABBA at all. Next week, we'll put Fernando on. Yeah, maybe, ne- <laughs> maybe next week. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. But 35 years, that's a long time. Yeah. They'll jump back together. It's pretty cool. Your natural reaction. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye.